Hello and welcome to Teachers in the Dungeon. I'm Tom with Dan and we are the Teachers in the Dungeon. We're so happy you've joined us today and thank you for your support. Be sure to let us know what you think about today's show. Our contact information and social media are in the show notes. Okay, let's delve into the dungeon. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Teachers in the Dungeon. I'm Tom Gross with Dan Ream, and wow, it's summertime. Doesn't feel like it. <laughs> I was just going to say, I, I feel it feels like fall this morning here in central Illinois, that is true. which actually fall is a pleasant season, so it's not that it's not pleasant, but it's yeah. very chilly after we've... It was kind of a... Well, we hit a week of 90-degree weather, oh, 90 yeah. and kind of humid, and then some storms came through, and we're back to fall like weather. Yeah. If you're in Midwest, it's it's pretty pretty typical. Pretty actually. standard. Yep. Usually, it's just a snap of the finger from winter to summer. We don't get much spring anymore. But anyway, we are in the dungeon, and we are ready to talk about the brand new book from Wizards of the Coast. Morden Canaan presents Monsters of the Multiverse. But before we get to that. I've got a news item, and we have our weekly question for yes. you. The news item I wanted to, to mention or talk about today, I came across this just while looking through some news feeds online, and I came across comic book news. If you don't follow that, it, they, they cover Dungeons & Dragons things, Star Wars, comic, obviously comic books. That's their, uh, <laughs> no way. State. I know. Crazy, crazy title. But anyway, they put this out on May 20th this article, and uh, I'm just going to read the opener to it, and we can kind of have our reaction to it. <laughs> WizKids will release a set of five pre-painted Dungeons & Dragons miniatures with characters taken from the upcoming starter set, Dragons of Stormwreck Isle. Cool. The upcoming set, the cool was my... I added that. That wasn't in the article. The upcoming set... <laughs> Uh, where's my copy? <laughs> the upcoming set is notable in that four of the characters resembled aged-up versions of the child heroes seen in the 1980s Dungeons & Dragons cartoon. The set includes a paladin, a cleric, fighter, wizard, and a rogue, with the paladin based on Eric the Cavalier. Yep. Remember him? The wizard based on Presto. I, these names I would not have gotten. The fighter based on Hank and the rogue based on Diana. Notably missing from the group is Sheila, who wears a cloak of invisibility. <laughs> kind of hard to show yeah, that. Right. You know? Well, I, we, no, they did sell it to you. Maybe, really, it's maybe there. it's, yes, it's, it's, there's a spot in the plastic <laughs> blister pack. That is fantastic marketing. I love that. And then the child barbarian, Bobby. So they, they have, they have images of these miniatures. And yes, indeed, they are a little older. Anyway, my favorite is the what looks like the ranger. You can look at these. We'll put the link in our in the show notes. But what do you think, Dan? A stretch back to the 1980s cartoon. I was going to say, I, I think I had just aged out of watching cartoons when that came on. I think I, think I still, that was still the time period where you could get 90 minutes of Bugs Bunny yes. on Saturday mornings. Of course. And so I did still watch those. I had older brothers who made fun of me for everything, but Bugs Bunny was acceptable. So okay. I would watch, and then when they were home from college, they would watch with me. Around there, I would see the Dungeons & Dragons cartoon. And I remember being intrigued, yeah. but I was, 
I just a little bit aged out, so it, it didn't hold me. I think I watched an episode or two. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm not ashamed to say I will still watch cartoons even now. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, though. The Bugs Bunny, Tom and Jerry, classics. I can watch those anytime, even as an adult. I've in- introduced them to my kids, but, man, even they struggle to to watch, sit down and watch cartoons for too terribly long. I'm still laughing and they're like, okay, I'm ready to move on. (laughs) But anyway, the Dungeons and Dragons, I I never really bought into the campiness of it. To me, Dungeons and Dragons was a serious thing and the cartoon was a little campy. Um, It was. I I liked it. I still watched it, but I I was always kind of like, oh, I wish this was cooler. Like, I wish it was, I don't know, I guess I wanted violence. (laughs) Remember, Eric was a jerk. That always got his comeuppance. Yes, yes. About. And you had the little goat that hung out, or the goat or something that hung out with the barbarian uh, child. And so I, I think they're cool now looking back on it. I'm like, oh, but these are these are fun. But as a young teenager, I wasn't buying it because I wanted something, something with more realism to it. But I will say, we were really inspired by some of the weapons that were on that. The the bow where that has no string, but when you go to string it, the, the light. It's oh. Like, it's like a light, a string of light that shoots a, a, an arrow of light or fire or something. I thought that was cool. And then the bow staff that the, the I thought there was a monk, but maybe not. There was I, someone had a bow staff that would like shrink or oh. extend, which I, I always thought was pretty cool. Always enjoyed the villains. Uh, I don't remember the, the like the vampire villain's name, but uh, Tiamat was in it. And I was always intrigued by this character of Dungeon Master. I mean, mm. I think you had to address it, yeah. um, but I didn't really... I guess I would have thought that Dungeon Master would have narrated instead of been a part of the right. story. He kind of set the players on their way, which again, I don't know, maybe, maybe that was kind of cool. I kind of need to go back and watch those again. But this does make me remember that somewhere in the book of the the light beyond the witch light is that what it's called? Something, whatever, whichever book that is, there is a hint of some of these characters or themes from the original cartoon in that book oh, as cool. well. So I that'd do, be a good place for it. Yeah, I do like that they're that they are tapping into that. I think that's fun for people of our generation who enjoyed that and maybe get kids back into watching cartoons. I mean, hey, that's that's always a good thing. Um, in fact, I would not be opposed to a, a retro. A bring, let's bring a back... A generation of kids addled by too much sugar from their cereal sitting in front of the TV for exactly. three hours on Saturday morning. Exactly. If I could just get my kids to wake up on a Saturday morning, that would be a win. So anyway, I wanted to share that. I thought, you know, I think they're kind of cool to to see these and the, the image of them as grown adults. Yeah, there's Eric kind of looking like his his complainy, sort of rude, yes. uh, self, self-absorbed look on his face. But still, he's got a cool sword and a shield and his armor is super cool. So anyway, wanted to mention that, the link in the show notes. So what's our question today? So in line with, the Book of Monsters. This is one I think we asked a variation of this before, but oh, yeah. we're going to revisit your favorite legendary monster. Ooh, favorite legendaries. Legendary monster. So some examples of that, I'm guessing, are like Demogorgon, Orcus, Tiamat. Right, any any 
demon lord or, or dragon, ancient dragon or uh, devil, arch devil or celestial. I guess even a Giants. celestial could be. Yes, anything is really hard to fight. Yeah, you, yeah, okay. So I think mine is, and this is more, I, I've never faced this character as a player. And actually, I've never run this character. That's the tough thing. I think as a DM, it is super challenging to run a legendary creature. Um, there's right. so much that goes into them, and it you know it'd be like it'd be like on the player side. Oh, hey, here we're gonna play today a one shot. Here's a 20th level character. Let's play. Yeah. I mean, yeah. getting all the nuances. You don't really grow up with them through the game and then all of a sudden you've got a legendary villain that's why i like recurring villains that gain level so that that recurring villain right kind of grows with the players and you know like things that what have i used on the players before what have they what have they done to themselves as they've gained in, in level to try to counter this recurring villain and then how can i counter that as the villain so legendary villains this one is legendary and you know from past shows that one of my favorite undead are liches. Right. Uh, you also yeah. know from the adventure that we're running that we have yet to talk about in Teachers in the Dungeon that we have a lich that is definitely going to be coming back again. <laughs> I, well, I think. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm just blowing smoke there. But so my legendary creature is Aseric or Aserac, but I'm pretty sure it's Aseric. He is the main villain in – one of the main villains in – Oh, that adventure was right on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> I'm killing, kicking myself. I can't think of it. But again, he's the villain in Chult, Tomb of Annihilation. That's it. And uh, oh, you needed what? You didn't even need the word. You just needed yep the letter. That's right. And so you're looking for. He has an artifact, and I don't remember the artifact. But what I love about him is love might be a strong word. What I enjoy about this this legendary villain is at the beginning of the module, the editors of of from Wizards basically say, "This is not really an adventure that the, that the characters are are probably going to survive," <laughs> and and mainly because of of the danger of dealing with a lich of such power, you know, give them a warning up front that this it's is probably the title, yeah tomb of annihilation <laughs> and so i just i think just his legendary story and he is also the main villain in tomb of horrors so i just think he i think he's really i i just i i really like the lore of liches i love this idea of they make it most of them have made a choice to go into lichdom for eternal life and they're willing to trade, make that trade of, of actual life to undead life and for the sake of power and influence and whatever else it was that they wanted that immortal uh, self. And then the fact that you can kill them as a character, but unless you've got that phylactery, they're going to come back and they're going to come and get you. Right. And that that's just sort of a frightening concept. Ari Salvatore in one of the Dritt Stewart books, and that is an issue that, Dritz is constantly dealing with when he has to fight this lich. <laughs> and actually, sometimes the lich, because of their immortalness, they might actually help you because it has a bigger picture to it. And mm -hmm. so I always like it when a, when, a, when a monster has that ability to say, hey, I know you think I'm evil, but I've got something that you might be able to use as long as you can help me. Right. And then it's like that, that dilemma of, 
do I help something that's evil, but it helps us to do good on this side? Oh, I love that part. So anyway, Aseric, it would be my favorite legendary creature. How about you? Well, the way you've described there at the end dovetails nicely with with mine. And, and as I think about this, I'm almost kind of <laughs> being on a Sunday and not being at church as I should be. Uh, <laughs> I feel a little guilty even saying this, that my, my favorite legendary monster is the demon lord, Grazd. Nice. So I figured. As I as I think through it, though, you know the the whole satanic panic and all that. Mm-hmm. If you look at the the demon lords from a Christian worldview, D and D kind of got it right because if you read about each of them, their ultimate goal is chaos and destruction. They mm-hmm. want everything gone except themselves. Right. So it's not like you're supposed to admi- admire <laughs> or anything like that. They're just. Yeah. They're just these forces of, of evil distilled to its most basic, which is, I matter, nobody else does, mm-hmm. which is, is pretty powerful. Now, having said that, what's, what's interesting about Grazd is kind of like what you said, is he, most of the other demon lords are portrayed as, as deeply inhuman, very inscrutable, just, just creatures that you can't really reason with you don't really have parlay with you just right. you just have to attack or run they want to destroy yeah yes and grazd is different he's the one that is very i mean he's sort of the master of temptation okay so he wants to draw you in and corrupt you little by little and he makes an interesting adversary in the same way that you describe the liches in that he he might not be an enemy on any given day. Mm-hmm. He's got his own plots and his own plans. Right. And I, I, I feel like I grew into that when we DM'd and he popped up in your story mm-hmm. that, that really he wasn't a bad guy. He wasn't, I mean, for you directly, he wasn't right. trying to hurt you. Yes. He had bigger fish to fry. You were pawns, but you were useful. So he was willing to kind of go along and then once he got what he wanted, he just sort of mocked you and, and left. <laughs> but that was fun to play a character like that that uh, was, you know, had these big master plans. And I, I'm like you, though, I think if, if and when we go back to Ricks and Borum and the rest, mm-hmm. what would it be like if you actually had to face him as an enemy? Right. That would be difficult to run, but it'd be very intriguing because it's not a straight ahead. I mean, he can do damage directly with a sword, but there are many, many other things he'll do first. That's the thing with legendary creatures is their influence that a lot of times you may never, you may never face them because they have so much influence on other, they have, you know, they have soldiers and they have agents and they have, you know, side uh, sidekicks. That's not really the word I wanted. But, you know, there's so many layers to get to them that sometimes just their influence is what makes them intriguing. Yes. Yes. So, all right. Anything else to say on that? No, I don't think so. Probably about time for a, a break, though, huh? Yeah. Before we head to a break, just let us know what your legendary creature uh, would be your favorite legendary creature or opponent? Um, is it a well-known? Are you a fan of Stranger Things? And is Demogorgon or Vecna or one of those guys, the Mind Flayer, are they your favorites? 
Let us know on social media, Instagram and Facebook, Teachers in the Dungeon. Let us know on Twitter, at Dungeon Teachers. Or you can send us a an essay. <laughs> <laughs> it's send summertime, it. so we're not grading it. That's right. We're not grading it, but we'll read it online. If you let us know what you think about your favorite legendary, you can email us, teachersinthedungeon at gmail.com. We will be right back on Teachers in the Dungeon. And we are back, Teachers in the Dungeon. I'm Tom with Dan, and we are here to talk about the brand new D&D book, Morden Kanan Presents Monsters of the Multiverse. I think we want to talk a little bit about our, our impressions of the book. And to start that, there is a section in here that I want to read that's on the, okay, being a librarian, I know the name of this page. So let me nerd out as a librarian. The back, so there's the title page of a book. The, the page behind that that has the copyright date and everything you'd need, to, need if you're going to reference a source, that's called the Verso page. And so Did on the Verso that. page is a little note that I want to mention because I think it will help us in our discussion of mm. like our, our impressions of this book. It says, this book is a revision of content that originally appeared in the books Volo's Guide to Monsters, copyright 2016, Morden Kanan's Tomb of Foes, 2018. It also includes revised options from Princes of the Apocalypse, 2015, Eberron Rising from the Last War, 2019, and Mythic Odysseys of Theros, 2020. So Monsters of the Multiverse is really a compendium, I suppose, of rewrites. What do you think about that? What are your thoughts? I say I sort of date myself here going back to the 80s. It reminds me of the book version of the Greatest Hits album by your favorite band in the (laughs) 80s. They put out two or three albums and then they do a Greatest Hits album with songs that you already had from the other albums, but then they'd put out two new ones on that album. So if you wanted those songs, you had to buy the Greatest Hits album. And this is not quite that. That's not a, a perfectly apt. I think for it to be completely correct is that each of the greatest hits would have had to have been remixed mm, okay. as well. Yes. So there, there is more here, but if you are into D&D and you have, like I do, not the entire collection of books, but just here and there, mm-hmm. a lot of this you already have. Yes. Except that it's been altered, edited, updated. Yeah. In fact, I, I have all the books that this is rewriting except for Princess of the Apocalypse. That's a little before I started collecting all of the books, um, and I just haven't gone back to uh, grab that one. Yeah, I think there's two chapters in the book, Fantastical Races and the Bestiary, and then they have a, an appendix of monster lists. But in just sort of, I have not done a close examination of any of the things that are in here. In particular, I think what I want to mention is in the bestiary. I've not done a a clear, like, what's different between, find a good one here that (laughs) I want to discuss. Let's go with the uh, Darklings. I haven't done a close examination of what's different from the original publication to this, but you had noted one one item that I hadn't really consistent one consistent one change. consistent change and that was on the note of alignments right right so unaligned beasts and things like that are are unchanged but on 
virtually every other creature except legendary creatures. They they kept that the okay. same. Every other creature, they put the, the word typically into the alignment. Right. Typically neutral, evil, typically chaotic, good. Yes. Remove it's that with what I imply from that is it's removing the absolutes. Right. Or at least the impression of the absolutes. Right. And I think this is, I know we had talked a little bit about when we first, when I handed the book over to you, or I think it was actually when you gave it, when you gave it back to me after looking at it, we talked a little bit about this and it's fine. I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem with that at all. Not at all. I think where I kind of scratch my head and I go, okay, how, how necessary was that? And here's my thinking on it is fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons has really made a, a positive move in the direction of this is your story. Mm-hmm. These are guidebooks, not rule books. Right. And so That's a good way to put it. as I've always, as I've played the game as a DM and as a player, I guess with that sort of unwritten statement, or maybe it is a written statement, you know, this is a guidebook, you know, really the person that's in charge is the dungeon master. And then everything else is negotiable between the players and the dungeon master. And so I guess I've always just already put in my own mind's eye that typically things are evil, typically things are good, mm-hmm. and you can always have extenuating circumstances. You can right. always have a dritz to warden among the drow. Right. Which means, you know... And, and, and that if goes not, all the way back to 90s? Yeah, yes. I think the original Dritz Jordan stories where Ari Salvatore brought a good, or at least a drow that has a conscience from late 1980s, I think is when Crystal Shard was, was written. So, so I guess I look at the book and I say, so was it really necessary to create a book to change the alignment? Right, right. Or give and, that impression that alignment is not an absolute. And I think that's, as you, you said it well, that these are guidebooks. And that was part of the fun is presenting a character that, that the, the players are definitely going to expect to behave in one way right. and then doesn't. Mm-hmm. And part of that expectation is when you have essentially the absolutes in the guidebook. Mm-hmm. Players are aware. Drow have a very corrupt society. Mm-hmm. So we see a drow, we know what to expect. And and I played with that with you guys. Yes, you did. And created a very noble drow. Mm-hmm. And you can still do that. And, and, yeah. I, and I think what they're basically doing, I, I, maybe there are people out there that are rules lawyers and that say, no, that drow has to be evil. Mm-hmm. Like I said, like you, ultimately I'm neutral about this. If you want to put in typically... Sure, that's fine. Makes it more clear what what I think reasonable people were already doing with with all of these tropes, which yeah. is playing with them and bending them and and seeing what unique spins they can put on them. Yeah. I mean, so again, I have no problem with the book. I, I bought the book. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. excited about the book, and I I I've, I enjoy looking at it and finding those things. So that's so that is not an issue. I I, I want to express that. We should view all of, of the players' books, not players' books, but all of the D&D books as these are things to work with. Bring what you want into your own game. You know, it, it doesn't always have to be absolute. And again, having played first edition, 
things were absolute in first edition. Mm -hmm. But also the game was different. It was more of a hack and slash, dungeon crawls. You're running into a dungeon to clean, we would call it clearing out. Let's clear out that dungeon. Right. What did we mean when we said that? We're going to kill everything in there and we're going to take the treasure and we're going to leave. It's a different era. It's a different, I mean, you can still do that. And I'm waiting for you or I, one of us is going to do a dungeon crawl here soon. I just, I just have a feeling, (laughs) but, but it, you know, everything doesn't have to be, that's always good. And that's always bad. So I guess moving forward, it doesn't hurt to have this, this update. I just don't know that it was particularly necessary, but you, you use a a word that I want to, I want to not fix because there's nothing wrong. You said, maybe there are some rules lawyers out there. Oh, I have absolutely no doubt there are there are DMs that the book says there's nothing wrong with that, but that's but not probably a game that I'm going to last very long in. Right, is right. a DM that does that. And one last thing, I guess, if if I'm being really honest and picky at the same time, is part of me says, couldn't you guys trust me to be reasonable and thoughtful mm-hmm. about this? Mm-hmm. You know, is there really a need to spell out every boundary? You know, maybe there is, maybe there is, but I... <laughs> it, that just reminded me of, I think I, I, I aligned it to this. It's almost like getting the cup of coffee from McDonald's that right? says, caution, <laughs> hot coffee. I don't need that on the <laughs> cup to tell me not to spill this in my lap or not to just chug it. You know, I know it's going to be hot coffee. I can't like I feel like there's a part of us that live in a world where everybody feels like all of these warnings need to be out there and I just I think we just need to be more reasonable people. You know, and actually I think that fits at another level beyond what you just said is because there was a lawsuit it yeah. became you know we have to put this on we have to put this warning on to mm-hmm. cover our own butts. Right. Yes, that's so, just the world world we live in. So anyway, that was just kind of our initial reactions to the book. But there's a lot that I like in this book, mm-hmm. even though, and it's hard, to, it's hard for me to even think, why would I say that in a book that's just a reprint? Here's why. Chapter one, I think they, and it's nothing to do with wizards, but I think they got this right. Let's go back to a conversation we had in an episode <laughs> yes. of our things that we hate about D&D. Right. They must have listened. They almost fixed it. Almost fix it. I'm going to take a pencil and I'm going to add to the table of contents here. Here's why. (laughs) Our complaint was Dragonborn. And just how Dragonborn doesn't seem to fit the mold of traditional adventuring. You know, when I I go elves, dwarves, gnomes, halflings, humans, even half-orcs, all humanoids that have similarities in my mind, Mm -hmm. okay? And I'm not saying I'm the only one who's right here. So if you disagree with me, disagree with me, please. But I look at that and I'm like, now now Dragonborn is a common race in the Dungeon Master's Guide. It's fine. It's not a huge problem, but I, I think about like the rest of them in there and the dragon, it's like, which one of these things doesn't belong? Come on, can you tell? Remember Sesame Street? Dragonborn's the one. When I look at a face of Dragonborn and a human and a gnome and a, and a dwarf, there's a face there that doesn't fit. Yeah. And so I, I have a hard time seeing in a, in, a, in a humanoid campaign that the Dragonborn is like someone that's going to fit in. Now, again, I'm, I'm being something here. But here's where they fixed it in this book, and I love it. 
the chapter of this of this uh, first the, the chapter title is Fantastical Races. Thank you. <laughs> that is the perfect title. But where they miss the mark is Dragonborn doesn't show up <laughs> in Fantastical <laughs> Races. <laughs> that you know the funny thing is this isn't where I thought you were going. Oh, because okay. one of the other things I forget if it made our list, but one of the other things we hate about D anD D is the fact that there is no central location. Yes, that too for any anything that you're looking for. Races are scattered in six, seven different books. All of that. Mm-hmm. This is a as you said a compendium. Yes, all the races that they've they've officially sanctioned or whatever are right there for exactly. You. So now I don't have nice. to. I don't have to go to Volos and I don't have to go to. Um, the Princes of Apocalypse. I don't have to go to uh, Eberron book. So here's the list of fantastical races. I may or may not include my pencil edition. <laughs> you got the Aarakocra, the, uh, is it Asimar? Mm-hmm. Um, Bugbear, Centaur, Changeling, Deep Gnome, the Duergar, which I think is interesting because they are just a derivation, of, is that the right word of that? Mm-hmm. But they are just a shift of dwarves. The Aladrin, Fairy, Furbolg, Several uh, the air, earth, fire, water, Geonosis, the Githyanki, and the Githrazai, goblins, Goliaths. I don't even know this one. Herongon. That's the rabbit. Folk. Oh yes, thank you. The hobgoblin, Kenku, Kobold, lizard folk, Minotaur, orc, full orc, not not half orc, mm-hmm. orc, satyrs, sea elves, which Jacques Jacques play is. The Shatterkai, which we've faced in, you faced in Slint in, or in, no. in with Borm's group. Mm-hmm. Okay. Telesaria. Uh, Shifters, Tabaxi, Tortle. Thank you. Thank you for Tabaxi. I can never find that race. I, I never know where to find that. Uh, Tortle, Triton, UNT, and down at the bottom, out of alphabetical order, Dragonborn. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's definitely debatable. And one way or another, you know, Marcus plays a Dragonborn. Our kids and our game club love to play Dragonborn. They are very popular. So, yeah. you know, it's just my personal opinion. And I think you were kind of on board with me, though, right? Or are you backing off a little? No, no, no. I am. Okay. I just, like you, we've got lots of friends and friends and acquaintances who play them. So, yep. It is what it is. I just have a hard time. I guess, I guess my issue is when I'm at the table and I'm picturing our campaign— I have a hard time seeing that dragonborn. I just walking through a tavern, bumping into things. I don't know. It's yeah. it's just it's all me. <laughs> don't take offense to it if you love dragonborn. Um, so I really like that they've put it all together. They've given a title to those races. Mm-hmm. So like I'm I'm fully on board if if we say if half of our campaign is like oh I want to be a lizard folk or I want to be a dragonborn or I want to be a kobold. Hey, can we all get together and let's just all do fantastical races? Now I've got a word for it. Yes. And so now we can have that sort of crazy group. And I say crazy, that's the word I use. I don't know what anyone else would use. Who one of our friends for, of the show had talked about this, addressed our that dragonborn. Was, that was Rumweather Reptiles. I was gonna say he might he might have something to say about to you now about this, I hope but then, I hope so. <laughs> but he had a really cool concept of of doing that. Do you remember what he called that? It was like the something guild or or something. I'd have to go back and look, but I really liked the way he yeah. sort of it almost made me feel like in the it was it Rudolph, the Red News Ranger, where they go to the island of misfits. 
he had sort of a campaign or at least a group of NPCs. Right. There were all of these now fantastical races that sort of like lived on the fringe of society. And I thought that was super cool. So that's that's my what I think they definitely got right on this book. Mm-hmm. Two things. They brought them all together in one location and they gave those races a, a category to fit into. And maybe categorizing things is what's is what gets people frustrated. You know, you mentioned that. The only other thing I would have changed is to say species. Oh, instead of races. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Just I, I like just that. makes makes it more clear. Yeah. I really like that. But so looking at this, I, I did want to mention the cover, which I think is magnificent. When I tried you, are, to, you, you are really drawn to the artwork, I've noticed each time. I was. And this cover, and I don't remember the entire name of the monster that is, that is just massive and very clear in this. It's Dreadnought. What's, what's the other Astral part? Astral Dreadnought. Astral Dreadnought. Scary. <laughs> scary looking. Um, scary to even conceptualize. But here is Morden Kanan. On, and I don't know what the creature that he's on. I'm sure it's in the book. But he's out here, and this dr- astral dreadnought is sneaking up behind him with his huge pinchers and his nasty-looking teeth and his single eye, which I went and read about that. That eye, um, when you gaze upon it, it, it's almost like looking into the galaxy. It's like it's like uh, mm. a star field in his eye. But that eye is also a field of anti-magic. And so wherever it gazes, does a cone of anti-magic. And hmm. so in order to fight this with magic, I mean, you either have to have a really high roll or you need to be out of its gaze. And so I think that's cool. There's something kind of Lovecraftian about Very Astral much. Dreadnought. Very much. And I like the fact that it also um, really plays into their recent announcement a couple months ago about uh, Spelljammer. Because mm-hmm. the dreadnought is something that would definitely appear yeah. in that. Um, and there's a descri- in the dreadnought's description, it talks about if you're astral walking and you've got that silver cord, which I remember from way back when. That that silver cord has been around for quite some time. If you're if you're astral walking and this thing comes up and snaps that cord, you're done. Hmm. You're done. But uh, another feature of the of this dreadnought is if it swallows you, you're not going into a, a stomach. You're going into an, another plane. It takes oh, you wow. to a different hmm. uh, plane of existence, which is which. Oh, yeah! I just <laughs> I think that is so cool. Anyway, the art on the cover is magnificent. I love to have this in in my collection solely for that. They did not do interestingly an alternative cover for this book. This huh. is the only cover that is out there and available. And I knew that from some of their marketing, but also when you go to the Verso page, if it had an alternative cover, it would have been on this uh, page. Got it. So they give you that that piece of art. And since we're talking about the art, the painting is by, oh, I got to hand this over to you. You're much better at the language. The author of this, his name is oh my out goodness. of my realm, but I'm going to give it to Dan because he's the language guy. Well, it looks Polish. Gerzegors Rutkowski. Okay. <laughs> so hats off to you for such a beautiful cover. So what else do you want to say about Monsters of the Multiverse? Say really, that's, I think that's we've probably done what we need to. It, it seems like it is, if you're just just jumping in to D&D, it might be a handy way to, something to have where almost everything's in one place as far mm-hmm. as monsters and races. Yep. Beyond that, it seems like it's, you know, if you're, like you're doing, you're a collector, Mm-hmm. And want to have the complete set. Yeah. That's what you would do. Yeah. Kind of like I would say, kind of like 
back to my analogy of the Greatest Hits album. Casual fan of some group, Greatest Hits comes out. Oh, yeah, I like all those songs. Mm -hmm. And serious fan who will die if they don't have every new single. But the in-between people, maybe that's something they'd take a pass on. Yeah. So, cool book, definitely worth looking at. This is one, as a librarian, that I would put in my library because of its uniqueness Mm -hmm. and how it covers a lot of stuff, has a a, a single place to find those fantastical beasts or creatures, species. And so this would be a nice one to have if you you can convince your public library or something like that to uh, put this in. This would be a handy piece to have. Nice uh, companion with a monster manual to give you a full span of monsters to use. Mm -hmm. The only other comment I'm going to say about it is just the coincidence of it coming out at the same time as Doctor Strange in the (laughs) multiverse of madness. I wondered I could never get the titles straight on either the movie or the book because I was mixing them all together. (laughs) So good job, Marvel and Wizards, for putting out two similarly titled uh, items that just messed me all up. It's a a cool book to have, but I don't know that it's something that everybody would need to get. Right. Morton Kanan presents Monsters of the Multiverse... That's our thoughts uh, here on Teachers in the Dungeon. Let us know what you think about this book, if you have picked it up or if you're thinking about it. Join us on social media, Facebook and Instagram, Teachers in the Dungeon, Twitter, at Dungeon Teachers, or send us an email, teachersinthedungeon at gmail.com. So until next time, keep rolling those 20s. We'll see you then. That wraps up today's session. So thank you for listening to Teachers in the Dungeon. We appreciate you and your feedback. Until the next time we see you in the dungeon, we hope you roll high on those saving throws. If you enjoyed the show and want to hear what happens in the adventure, subscribe to the podcast. Have questions, thoughts, or ideas? Check the show notes for our website and our contact information. This podcast is not affiliated or endorsed by Wizards of the Coast, Hasbro, or any other third-party Dungeons & Dragons entity. Teachers in the Dungeon is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. All names and sounds and any other related items are properties of their respective trademarks and or copyright holders in the U.S. or abroad. The official Dungeons & Dragons website can be found at www.dnd.wizards.com.